Chapter Four of Mystery of the Sea by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Crystal Treader. Lammas Floods. When I got to Cruden, it was quite dark. I had lingered by the way, thinking of Gormala MacNeil and all the queer kind of mystery in which she seemed to be enmeshing me. The more I thought, the more I was puzzled, for the strangest thing of all to me was that I understood part of what seemed to be a mystery. For instance, I was but imperfectly acquainted with the seer woman's view of what was to be the result of her watching Lochlane MacLeod. I knew, of course, from her words at our first conversation that in him she recognized a man doomed to near death according to the manifestation of her own power of second sight. But I knew what she did not seem to, that this was indeed a golden man. From the momentary glimpse which I had had in that queer spell of trance, or whatever it was which had come to me on the pier head, I had seemed to know him as a man of gold, sterling throughout. It was not merely that his hair was red gold, and that his eyes might fairly be called golden, but his whole being could only be expressed in that way. So that when Gormala spoke, the old rhyme seemed at once a prime factor in the group of three powers which had to be united before the fathoming of the mystery of the sea. I accordingly made up in my mind to speak with the seer woman and to ask her to explain my own intellectual attitude to the matter interested me. I was not sceptical. I did not believe. But I think my mind hung in poise. Certainly my sympathies tended towards the mysterious side, backed up by some kind of understanding of the inner nature of things which was emotional or unintentional rather than fixed. All that night I seemed to dream my mind working eternally round the data of the day. Hundreds of different relationships between Gormala, Lochlane MacLeod, Lammas Tide, the moon, and the secrets of the sea revolved before me. It was grey morning before I fell asleep to the occasional chirping of the earliest birds. As sometimes happens after a night of uneasy dreaming of some disturbing topic, the reaction of the morning carried oblivion with it. It was well into the afternoon when all at once I remembered the experience of the witch-woman, for as such I was beginning to think of Gormala. The thought came accompanied by a sense of oppression which was not of fear, but which was certainly of uneasiness. Was it possible that the woman had in some way or to some degree hypnotized me? I remembered with a slightly nervous feeling how the evening before I had stopped on the roadway obedient to her will, and how I had lost the identity of my surroundings in her presence. A sudden idea struck me. I went to the window and looked out. For an instant my heart seemed to be still. Just opposite the house stood Gormala, motionless. I went out at once and joined her, and instinctively we turned our steps towards the sand hills. As we walked along, I said to her, Where did you disappear to last night? About that which is to be done. Her lips and her face were set. 
I knew it was no use following up that branch of the subject, so I asked again. What did you mean by those verses which you told me? Her answer was given in a solemn tone. Them that made them alone can tell, until the time shall come. Who made them? Nen can tell now. They are as odd as the rocky foundations of the isles themselves. Then how did you come to know them? There was a distinct note of pride in her answer, such a note as might be expected from a prince speaking of his ancestry. They had not condoned to me through centuries. Frae mither to docher, and from mither to docher again, we never a break in the lang line of the talon. Know ye, young master, that I am o a race o seers. I take my name from that. Gormala uist, who through long years foresaw the passing o money a one. That Gormala, who throughout the islands of the west was known and feared o all men. That Gormala, whose mither's mither, and mither's mither again, away back in the darkness a time, when coracles crept towards the sunset o'er the sea, and returned not, held the fates of men and women in their hands, and ruled the mysteries of the sea. As it was evident that Gormala must have in her own mind some kind of meaning of the prophecy, or spell, or whatever it was, I asked her again. But you must understand something of the meaning, or you would not attach so much importance to it. I ken not but what is seen to myeen, and to that inner een, which telleth te the soul that which it seeth. Then why do you warn me that Lama's tide was near at hand? The grim woman actually smiled as she replied. Did ye no hearken to the words spoken of the Lama's floods, which be the proverbs that rule the spell? Well, the fact is that I don't know anything of Lama's tide. We do not keep it in the Church of England, I added as an afterthought explanatory of my ignorance. Gormala was clever enough to take advantage of having caught me in a weak place, so she took advantage of it to turn the conversation into the way she wished herself. What saw ye when Lochlane MacLeod grew smile near een and girt again? Simply that he seemed to be all at once a tiny image of himself, seen against a waste of ripe corn. Then it struck me that I had not as yet told her or anyone else of what I had seen. How then did she know it? I was annoyed and asked her. She answered scornfully. How kent I it? And me a seer are a race of seers. Are mawakinin then so dim or so smad that I cannot read the thoughts of men in the glances of their een? Did I not see Yerin look near and far as quick as thought? But what saw ye after when ye looked rapt and Yerin peered side to side, as though at one lion prone? I was more annoyed than ever, and answered her in a sort of stupor. I saw him lying dead on a rock, with a swift tide running by, and over the waters the broken track of a golden moon. She made a sound which was almost a cry, and which recalled me to myself as I looked at her. She was ablaze. She towered to her full height, 
with an imperious, exultant mien. The light in her eyes was more than human as she said, Dead as I myself saw him, and mid the foam of the tide-race. And God, always God, a hint to him in the een of the great seer. Gowden corn, and gowden moon, and gowden sea. Ay, and I see it now, vacky bird that I have been, the gowden mon indeed with his gowden een, and his gowden hair, and all the truth his gowden life. Then, turning to me, she said fiercely, Why did I warn ye that Lammas tide was near? Go ask those that value the months and days thereof, when be Lammas, and what it means to them that have faith. See what they are, learn of the coming of the moon, and of the flowing of the tides that follow. Without another word she turned and left me. I went back to the hotel at once, determined to post myself as to Lammas Tide, its facts and its constitutions, and the beliefs and traditions that hung around it, also to learn the hours of the tides, and the age of the moon about the time of Lammas Tide. Doubtless I could have found out all I wanted from some of the ministers of the various houses of religion which hold in Cruden, but I was not wishful to make public, even so far, the mystery which was closing around me. My feeling was partly a saving sense of humour, or the fear of ridicule, and partly a genuine repugnance to enter upon the subject with any one who might not take it as seriously as I could wish. From which latter I gather the whole affair was becoming woven into the structure of my life. Possibly it was that some trait, or tendency, or power which was individual to me, was beginning to manifest itself and to find its means of expression. In my secret heart I not only believed but knew that some instinct within me was guiding my thoughts in some strange way. The sense of occult power, which is so vital a part of divination, was growing within me and asserting its masterdom, and with it came an equally forceful desire of secrecy. The seer in me, latent so long, was becoming conscious of his strength, and jealous of it. At this time, as the feeling of strength and consciousness grew, it seemed to lose something of its power from this very cause. Gradually, it was forced upon me that for the full manifestation of such faculty as I might possess, some kind of abstraction or surrender of self was necessary. Even a few hours of experience had taught me much, for now that my mind was bent on the phenomena of second sight, the whole living and moving world around me became a veritable diorama of possibilities. Within two days from the episode at the pierhead, I had had behind me a larger experience of effort of occult force than generally comes to a man in a lifetime. When I look back, it seems to me that all the forces of life and nature became exposed to my view. A thousand things which hitherto I had accepted in simple faith as facts were pregnant with new meanings. I began to understand that the whole earth and sea, and air, all that of which human beings generally, ordinarily, take cognizance, is but a firm or crust which hides the deeper moving powers or forces. With this insight, I began to understand the grand guesses of the pantheists, 
pagan and Christian alike, who out of their spiritual and nervous and intellectual sensitiveness began to realize that there was somewhere a purposeful cause of universal action, an action which in its special or concrete working appeared like the sentience of nature in general and of the myriad items of its cosmogony. I soon learned that Lammas Day is the first of August and is so often accompanied by heavy weather that Lammas floods are almost annually recurrent. The eve of the day is more or less connected with various superstitions. This made me more eager for further information, and by the aid of a chance friend I unearthed at Aberdeen, a learned professor, who gave me, offhand, all the information which I desired. In fact, he was so full of astronomical learning that I had to stop him now and again in order to elucidate some point easily explainable to those who understood his terminology, but which wrapped my swaddling knowledge in a mystery all its own. I have a sneaking friendliness, even now, for anyone to whom the word syzygy carries no special meaning. I got at the basis of facts, however, and understood that on the night of July 31, which was the eve of Lammas tide, the moon would be full at midnight. I learned also that from certain astronomical reasons, the tide, which would ostensibly begin its flow a little after midnight, would in reality commence just on the stroke. As these were the points which concerned me, I came away with a new feeling of awe upon me. It seemed as though the heavens, as well as the earth, were bending towards the realization or fulfillment of the old prophecy. At this time my own connection with the mystery, or how it might affect me personally, did not even enter my head. I was content to be an obedient item in the general scheme of things. It was now the 28th July, so, if it were to take place at the Lammas tide of the current year, we should know soon the full measure of the denouement. There was but one thing wanting to complete the conditions of the prophecy. The weather had been abnormally dry, and there might after all be no Lammas floods. Today, however, the sky had been heavily overcast. Great black clouds, which seemed to roll along tumbling over and over, as the sail of a foundered boat does in a current, loomed up from the west. The air drew closer, and to breathe was an effort. A sort of shiver came over the wide stretch of open country. Darker and darker grew the sky, till it seemed so like night that the birds in the few low-lying coppices and the scanty hedgerows ceased to sing. The bleat of sheep and the low of cattle seemed to boom through the still air with a hollow sound, as if coming from a distance. The intolerable stillness which precedes the storm became so oppressive that I, who am abnormally susceptible to the moods of nature, could almost have screamed out. Then all at once the storm broke. There was a flash of lightning so vivid that it lit up the whole country away to the mountains which encircle Braemar. The fierce crash and wide roll of the thunder followed with incredible quickness and then the hot, heavy-dropped summer rain fell in torrents. All that afternoon the rain fell, 
with only a few brief intervals of glowing sunshine. All night, too, it seemed to fall without ceasing, for whenever I woke, which I did frequently with a sense over me of something impending, I could hear the quick, heavy patter on the roof, and the rush and gurgle of the overcharged gutters. The next day was one of unmitigated gloom. The rain poured down ceaselessly. There was little wind, just sufficient to roll northeastwards the great masses of rain-laden clouds piled up by the Gulf Stream against the rugged mountains of the western coast and its rocky islands. Two whole days there were of such rain, and then there was no doubt as to the strength of the Lammas floods this year. All the wide uplands of Bukan were glistening with runnels of water whenever the occasional glimpses of sunshine struck them. Both the water of Crudin and the Backburn were running bank high. On all sides it was reported that the Lammas floods were the greatest that had been known in memory. All this time my own spiritual and intellectual uneasiness was perpetually growing. The data for the working of the prophecy were all fixed with remarkable exactness. In theatrical parlance the stage was set, and all ready for the action which was to come. As the hours wore on, my uneasiness changed somewhat, and apprehension became merged into a curious mixture of superstition and exultation. I was growing eager to the coming time. The afternoon of July 31 was fine. The sun shone brightly, the air was dry, and for the time of year cool. It seemed as though the spell of wet weather was over, and that fiery August was coming to its own again. The effects of the rainstorm were, however, manifest. Not only was every rill and stream and river in the north in spate, but the bogs of the mountains were so saturated with wet that many days must elapse before they could cease to send their quota to swell the streams. The mountain valleys were generally lakes in miniature. As one went through the country, the murmur or rush of falling water was forever in the ears. I suppose it was in my own case, partly because I was concerned in the mere existence of Lammas floods, that the whole of nature seemed so insistent on the subject. The sound of moving water in its myriad gamut was so perpetually in my ears that I could never get my mind away from it. I had a long walk that afternoon through roads still too wet and heavy for bicycling. I came back to dinner thoroughly tired out and went to bed early. End of chapter 4 Recording by Crystal Treader